Welcome. Happy New Year. It certainly has been a tumultuous one already at that. I am recording this Thursday morning, January 7th from Alexandria, Virginia, not too far from the mall and the Capitol, which proved to be a site of chaos yesterday. However, this week's esteemed guest certainly brought the cheer and insight. Long-standing broadcaster Jason Blewett joined me to give his two cents on everything Gulfstream Park, as well as his own life. A New York native, uh, he moved his tag to Florida in 2017 with his wife, Christina, and hasn't looked back since. Quick side note, we discussed the invite list for the 2021 Pegasus World Cup renewal. And as we recorded on Tuesday, January the 5th in the morning, morning slash afternoon, the news had not yet come out that reigning Pegasus World Cup defender Mucho Gusto has been retired after sustaining a soft tissue injury in a gallop at Santa Anita and hence shall not be lining up. So do bear that in mind when we discuss the field. Jason, welcome to Talk Racing to me. I'm so glad uh, you found the time to join me today. I know it's uh, your day off, but wow, you have uh, quite the schedule. The Champions Meet going on at Coldstream Park five days a week. Uh, what do you do on your day off? What, what did you do today? Well, it, yeah, it's funny. Uh, today, my wife, Christina, and I, we, we got up. I mean, we're normally up pretty pretty early on Tuesdays because that's our, our one day off together. Uh, for most weeks. So we were up and we were at, uh, we were at the beach, you know, in the ocean paddle boarding by, uh, we were a little late today and um, didn't make it for like the tip of the sunrise, but we, you know, we were, we were on our boards by like 7am and uh, went paddle boarding for a few hours out in the ocean. It was uh, fairly calm. Uh, so yeah, we, we try to stay active. We like to hike. We like to, we like to run together and, uh, we finally invested in paddle boards, uh, back this past August after talking about it for quite some time, because they're, if anybody's ever looked or liked paddle boarding themselves there, you know, it's a little bit of an investment. They're not, they're not totally inexpensive, but we finally, uh, pulled the trigger and, uh, we love, we love paddle boarding. We go just about every every week. There's nothing like, you know, being out on the ocean, watching the sun come up. That sounds so wonderful. I love the fact that you're saying we were late 7am. I mean, how early do you get up every day? Yeah, we like to be up, you know, uh, by 5.15. And, you know, it's funny, my wife has been been also uh, outriding up at she works up at Palmetto. She works for the Stronic Group as well. So uh, and she's been doing that for almost two months now. So like, on most mornings, her alarm is going off at like 3.45, 3.55 a.m., so pretty pretty early, and I don't get up with her, thankfully, uh, the day she goes and uh, and outrides up at Palmetto's. So, uh, you know, in a way, I guess getting up at 5.15 or 5.30 in the morning, even though it technically is a day off, it's not all that early compared to the fact that most days she she's up and out of bed by, by 4 a.m., which is just nuts. Oh, I can't believe that. See, I I compare those times to uh, Australian racing times because when I was riding out in Sydney, I would be on a horse by 4 a.m., but I didn't think that anyone else across the globe would be silly enough to want to do that as well. I mean, what, what time does the track open normally? Yeah, what what, uh, what if 
five. She, yeah, she's standing. Uh, she's standing out, uh, getting some sun in our backyard right now. Yeah, five thirty a.m. That first set goes out. So you know when you take into account like the pony she gets on trigger. You know, she's got to, you know, take him out, groom him, you know, get the tack on him and make sure he's happy and, and fed and ready to go. So, uh, you know, it's a whole process. You just don't show up and your horse is waiting for you. So, you know, got to be out there that first set at 530. But, you know, there's there's preparation that has to be done with her horse before she's she's even stepping foot onto that training track. Of course, we all have to get warmed up but let's move uh move back towards uh, your career and what you do uh, on a daily basis as well as uh what you did earlier uh when you started out in horse racing i know that the majority of the audience that sees you on a day-to-day basis at Gulfstream park would have known you from the new york racing circuit as well and uh, i was doing a bit of digging and i saw that you grew up uh, quite close to mm-hmm. belmont park floral park i actually lived there for a tiny bit myself when i was working uh, with naira how did you get into this part of the industry i can imagine people might go to the races and have a look but would you have grown up seeing yourself being an on-air analyst no, it's funny, um, you know, and I've told this story a few, few times because whenever anybody asked me, well, what, what happened? How did you, you know, how did you fall in love with racing and this career path and all that? You know, it all like, even though I, I mean, I literally grew up like a stone's throw from Belmont in Floor Park, New York. I went to high school, junior high and high school across the street from Belmont on Plainfield Avenue. My no way. Court. I used to go running there the, on yeah, their track. That's yeah. Where I went to, uh, no to way. Yeah. Yeah. So junior awesome. high and high school, seventh through 12th, 12th grade. And uh, it wasn't until the summer going in from ninth into 10th grade, it would have been the summer of 1993 that the Floor Park Youth Council, my dad used to volunteer with the Floor Park Youth Council. And this was probably in June or July, not long before they went to Saratoga. Not that I knew what Saratoga was at that time, but the Floor Park Youth Council had a family day. They were sponsoring a family day at the races. And my dad, you know, got got my family, including me, tickets. And I can still remember them telling me the night before it was probably a Friday night and the, and the floor park youth council was going on a Saturday. And I remember just giving him and my mom a hard time saying, I don't want to go, you know, watch stupid horses run around and blah, 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 blah. So, but they said, tough, we're going, we're spending the day as a family. And, uh, and that's the end of that. And, you know, you think like, you know, you look back and just, how life can change, like one decision can can change can change like the trajectory. And I, you know, long story short, went that that day with the youth council to to Belmont, and I can still remember for the first time walking out, getting there, and walking out onto the first floor apron, and just the size and the greenery and the beauty. And I hadn't even seen a race yet. We got there before the first race. Hadn't even seen a horse. And I just remember going, wow. I remember thinking, wow, this place is really, really nice and and beautiful. And, you know, long story short, uh, they ran the first race and I wasn't old enough to bet, not even close to being 18. So my mom asked me if I wanted to place a bet. And I, I looked at the odds board and the biggest priced horse was 13 to one. And I said, bet that the horse with the longest odds. And, uh, she was going to bet $2 to show. 
and she screwed up the bet and bet two dollars to win. And you could probably, you know, tell the rest of the story. That thirteen to one shot wound up winning the first race, and uh, and that was it. I was hooked, and much to my parents' chagrin, as tenth grade started. I would, after school, I would run over to Belmont, you know, fall meet was underway in September and October. And I would, after school, not go home immediately. I would go over and catch, you know, two, three, four races. And at first I think my parents were a little worried with the gambling and all that stuff. But, uh, they saw I just loved racing. I would sit at home uh, with the OTB channel on, listening to the race calls, looking at the newspaper every day, the entries, the charts. And I just, for the rest of high school, 10th grade on, you know, I just followed, I uh, fell in love with racing immediately and followed it like any of my other friends would follow hockey or baseball or, or what have you. Wow, that's uh, quite something. So you, I can understand your parents' point of view as well. I, I dare say I had to explain to my family that I'm in this because I, I love horses and I think that made it more digestible for them than just the gambling aspect of it. So I, I do understand where they came from. But then you went out to get a degree as well later on. I do believe it was in uh, media communication or just communications, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolute media relations and, and communications. And, you know, you think about the proximity to where I grew up and, you know, Belmont being being there, you know, my my dad's father, my, my grandpa, John, who uh, passed, I mean, he's been dead a long time, passed in 1998. You just think about Again, being in the right place at the right time, you know, part of the story is he, my grandpa, John, would go and have his scotch every day at this little Italian restaurant in Floral Park called Poppy's Place. And what happened was he would go and all of the turf riders, you know, guys that rode for Newsday and the Daily Racing Forum and people that work for Naira, that for the most part was their, their after the races spot. So my grandfather got friendly with a number of people that worked in the industry, just as my obsession and love of the game Although a neophyte, I, you know, my, I was very passionate off the bat, like a lot of people listening. So, you know, through my grandfather, I was able to kind of meet and network, even, even being a sophomore in high school with people that already had positions in the game. So when I graduated high school in the, uh, in the summer, or I guess late spring of 1996, at the time, the New York Turf Riders Association, which I don't, I don't even think exists anymore, unfortunately, they, every summer, they had a $5,000 scholarship and an internship in Saratoga, working in the, uh, interning in the Saratoga Racecourse Press Box, if you won this scholarship. So in the summer of 96, I had applied, I was writing uh, this kind of predates the internet and, and certainly doing podcasts and blogs and all that stuff. None of this stuff existed, but you know, I wrote about horse racing for the floor park, local newspaper, the gateway. And I submitted all these, these articles I wrote and won this scholarship. So I interned in Saratoga summer 96 in the press box, which was amazing, you know, first time away from home. And uh, it was just so great living up there. I lived with Jenny Kellner and uh, Richie, Richie Rosenblatt, who are still good friends to this day. And, um, 
you know, so that's how I got my foot in the door. And I knew long, even before I graduated high school, that I just thought, what, what could be a better job than like working in the press box and going to the track every day and, and getting paid and getting, again, making a living writing and talking about horse racing. And that basically from like, again, going back to 10th grade on, my goal was to be basically a turf writer or something along those lines. I wanted to work in the press box and just cover horse racing for a living. I mean, that is something that both of us very much enjoy as a job. We know it also has a the downsides that sometimes it can be quite a lot, especially with, you know, 10 to 14, even sometimes on a Saturday races at Gulfstream Parks. So I know that it's a, a fair bit of work involved there, but just getting back to the New York Racing Association, what was your first ever job with them and, and how kind of did you progress? Well, I started out again, I had that internship in the summer of 96. And then I went originally away and my, I majored in journalism. I, I did play, I played lacrosse in, in high school and college. And not that I was like a division one player, but I was good enough to play college lacrosse. So I spent 1997 and 98 playing lacrosse in college at a small uh, school, Division three school in uh, in Northern Virginia called Randolph Bacon. And, you know, looking back, it was great and had a good time and all that. But I think I really missed I missed horse racing, missed being at home. So I moved back. I moved back home and completed my my bachelor's degree at CW Post, Long Island University. Uh, communications and journalism. And the timing of that was good. When I moved back permanently for the start of my junior year in college, the racing forum had been bought that summer by Steve Christ. And he, he took a lot of people that were working for Naira in the press box and communications. He brought them over to the racing forum. So I started after my internship a couple of years after that, I, I wound up working weekends for Glenn Mathis in the press box. And what that entailed off the bat, I would write, you know, stakes advances, backstretched notes, answered phones, you know, very, uh, you know, lower level stuff. But it was great because, you know, it was a part time gig as I finished school. And then when I graduated CW Post in May of 2000, I was immediately hired by Naira full time. And this this predates me doing any television. But, you know, again, I wrote stakes advances, uh worked on, you know, features and backstretch notes. And uh, it was during a time, it's kind of like the last, I feel like the last bit of like the quote unquote old days, because they were still on a daily basis, even downstate at Belmont, like, you know, on a spring or a fall afternoon, you know, you might have, you know, 10 or 12 people in the press box who were still writing daily for the newspapers, the, you know, New York post and the daily news and all that stuff. So, you know, my, my racing career really began in the Naira press box and it was all about, it was all about writing and, uh, and covering the races and promoting the races for the New York racing association. I dare say it's quite different now, a couple of decades have passed since. And indeed, I don't think there are that many uh, 
people up in the press box not not as many as there used to be and as you as you were saying writing on a daily basis for for the newspapers that unfortunately seems uh, to be you know fading ever so slightly how would you say that that has changed uh, well i mean the world again the internet certainly existed you know we're talking uh, let's just even you know as a reference point let's just say you know 2000 certainly the internet was a big thing then but i mean you know, digitally, and people still read, read, uh, you know, read newspapers. It was still uh, a, a business, and uh, certainly, I guess, uh, an industry where you know a, a journalist working for like a major New York uh, metropolitan paper, like the Daily News or New York Post, you know, they could make a living. And all those, like the the New York Post, the Daily News, New York Times, the Associated Press. Um, well, it's the racing form, uh, Newsday as well, which was like the Long Island local paper. I mean, they all had a minimum. I'm talking like a on a daily, you know, essentially Wednesday through Sunday, you know, schedule. All those beats had at least two guys, two covering thoroughbred racing full time. And now, I mean, like the, I, I haven't been in one of the New York press boxes uh, since Naira let me go. I mean, it's been been over four years. But I think, to my knowledge, outside of Saratoga, Dave Grenning is the only, you know, for the racing form. And Dave's the best reporter in the game and, and a good friend. But I think Dave's like the last, last reporter out there on a daily basis. So, again, I look back and I tend – to be like a nostalgic person. Not everybody's like that, but I am. But I'm thankful I came up during a time, although, yeah, it was in the mid to late 90s, and I'm sure things from the 70s and 80s had changed a lot. But I I did get to work with, like, alongside Joe Hirsch, who's the legendary daily racing form uh, turf writer, who the Saratoga Press Boxes is named after him. Um, So I, I feel like I got that last bastion of like the quote unquote dinosaurs of like the olden golden age. And, um, I look back on that period fondly and now everything obviously is online. And, and I mean, newspapers have been a, been a dying breed for, for the last 20 years. You know, don't think that just relates to horse racing, that that comes to journalism in general, that people are much more looking online as well as other locations to, to find their news, unfortunately. And yep. I dare say that paid journalism, hence, is uh, waning quite strongly, which is a big shame, in my opinion. I think we should 100% be paying for those top-end journalists to do their job, what they're good at, what they've been trained for. Just getting back to your time on air with the New York Racing Association, who were some of the people that you worked with? Well, I mean, off the bat, um, you know, the biggest influence on my hosting style, how I try to conduct myself both on camera and off camera, hands down is John Embrial, who I know you know and have probably, you know, by extension work with or worked around just with him, you know, calling the races now, uh, basically, you know, year round at Saratoga and Belmont and, uh, and Aqueduct. So yeah, no, Johnny, I, uh, is first and foremost and coming up. I mean, I worked with a guy named Mike Chirac, who was at Naira at the time, learned from him. Um, but yeah, no, Johnny, I was like a, a constant and I did a lot of TV back in the day with Eric Donovan, who now is, um, you know, one of, uh, New York racing association directors. I don't know his exact title, but I think he's the 
basically the director of television. So yeah, yeah Eric, he manages all the, the people that work in the broadcast. So he was my direct boss when I was there. Exactly. And um, I know that. And, uh, you know, Eric and I came up side by side. He's a year older than me. And uh, boy, I mean, uh, I think back to the people I'm, I'm closest with in the game. And it's hard to be closer with somebody than Eric and I. Um, you know, he's I've known him since the summer of 98. And, and again, we came up again, basically the same age. We worked together in the press box. We both started doing TV together. So, uh, and I still to this day keep in touch with Eric, who really is one of uh, the smartest people I, I've ever worked with in racing. And I'm glad he's just uh, not surprised, but just happy he's uh, doing a great job and has had a lot of success working for Naira. So he comes to mind. And then as you got further along, you know, when Naira hired Andy Serling, this would have been like, uh, two oh seven oh eight ish when 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 Andy was hired full time and then he came in and um, although Eric and I had been doing TV for a number of years not full time like we would um, or at least that I would you know Andy was a, a huge help just as far as I mean you know looking at a race handicapping I mean he's obviously one of the best analysts in the game and you could argue he might be the most insightful analyst in the game and you know i worked side by side with andy andy and i co-hosted together for a number of years and then maggie wolfendale was hired so it was the three of us for a number of years so you know off the top of my head you know johnny i is the biggest i'd say influence on me but spent a lot of time on camera with eric donovan andy and and maggie and then oh and then richard migliori when he was hired so that's basically like the core group when i think back when you ask me who i've worked with the most up there on on tv and obviously that's just a just a, a very impressive list of uh, of people that are outstanding at what they do Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that front. They are very, very strong at their jobs and in the game. I always love, love listening to them. And just getting back to perhaps towards the end of your time up in New York, uh, I know you just mentioned before we started recording this, that it's been, uh, that it's now four years exactly to the date that, um, yeah, to the day. I mean, wow, that you finished up with the New York Racing Ocean, but before that, you, you kind of started out Saratoga Live, which now has been built upon to be such a huge thing. Uh, I'm assuming there are just a lot of changes going on at that time. How would you reflect upon, you know, the, that last year there and those changes? It was good. No, it was good. It was far different. You know, as somebody that, you know, when it was like, Andy, Maggie, and even when Richie was hired, you know, I was I was the host and work with that work with the the three of them very closely. But it was a different when you know when Dave O'Rourke originally had this idea of Naira having its own, and you got to remember, I think back then Naira Betts was still like a regional. ADW. It wasn't national like it was, but that was the end game, obviously, to you know start this television show and hopefully go national uh, with with Naira Betts as an ADW. And uh, you know, it was uh, it was nerve not nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking, but you know, I had I realized off the bat, you know, hosting like a three hour and quarterbacking like a three hour live network show was was far different from just doing the simulcast feed, you know, and um, 
I feel like as that year progressed, I mean, it was a long time ago and I don't remember a lot like of individual shows per se, because there were a lot of them because we started that, that Naira live show during the uh, spring meet at Belmont, as we, we obviously built up towards the, uh, the initial Saratoga live broadcast, but it, it was good. And I, I'll tell you, although my tenure with Naira ended on January 5th, 2017, having, Having done that initial season as the host, and I wound up in Saratoga, I shared uh, hosting duties with Greg Wolf. But, you know, just for me personally, when I moved on to the Stronic Group and then Gulfstream, like I was that much better at my job, I think, more and, and that much more confident of of just quarterbacking and, and again, kind of being the, for lack of a better term, the traffic cop. So I learned... You know, again, I would have, I guess, in hindsight, you know, uh, would have been nice to, I don't know, have, have had another chance to or another season to continue to work on that show. Like the one year I, I was on it at the start of it, you know, I learned a lot and I was that much better prepared for the next chapter that would that would, you know, that would open in my in my in my career. I dare say it is very different from being a simulcast host because ha- having worked as a production assistant on those shows, I know how much goes into it and what kind of different elements are a part of it as well. I, I have to give them credit for doing such a an amazing job. But then, so you you ended up working for the Stronach Group. Uh, we share that now. Uh, how, you know, the move from New York to the sunshine in, in Florida, did it go favorably? Uh, what kind of were you take your takeaways from that? No, it was, it was really, you know, looking back, Naomi, my now wife, who was my then girlfriend, uh, Christina, who is a Saratoga Springs native. I obviously, uh, you know, where she's from, I met her at, at the, at the race course in Saratoga and she had just uh, moved in with me in September of 2016. And then I was let go the following January, January 5th, 2017. So, um, no, I mean, that was, that was a tough time, you know, losing, losing my gig, but I I mean, it was crazy looking back and I wasn't expecting a 10th of like the support that I got throughout the industry. It seemed like a lot of people were really upset and, and really liked the job that I did, which was great. And, uh, I've had just, I also want to interject before I continue the story. Like as I get older, I realize just how how many supporters I've had in, in racing. Like you need the opportunity in life, but you also need people to support you. And I've, I've just had that in spades from people that actually work in the industry to fans and horse players. And I, I truly appreciate all of it, but you know, I took the gig. It was great. I mean, PJ Campo at the time and Tim Ritvo and Dave Joseph, who's uh, still my boss at Gulfstream now for the Stronic group, they offered me a full-time job and uh, the Stronic Group was great. I mean, they paid they paid for the for the move uh, from New York uh, down. Uh, we live in northern Fort Lauderdale, and uh, you know we we started our uh, in our trek down here in uh, second half of April of 2017, and kind of took our time getting down, which was pretty great. I had never really done a, a straight shot drive from New York down to Florida, and uh, you know my wife and I love the outdoors, so. That was, uh, you know, exciting. You know, it was all those things. You look back, it was, it was awesome. It was exciting. It was nerve wracking. But, you know, I just knew, like I knew 
the Stronic group and the Gulfstream gig was going to be great and it was going to work out even though, you know, you're kind of in a way going into the great unknown. Yeah, your job might be very similar to what you were doing prior, which was the case, but different state, you know, it just, it was, looking back, it was a very like special time, as corny as that sounds. Uh, Just a lot of, you know, emotions wrapped up, wrapped up into one. And I started at Gulfstream uh, the Wednesday of Kentucky Derby week in 2017. So almost, almost four years ago. Well, time certainly flies. Well, we'll move on to Gulfstream Park as you've kind of given us a good intro towards it. The Currently, of course, the Gulfstream Park Championship meet is on the, the pinnacle, so to speak. You know, the winters down in Florida are very, very important. Uh, five days a week, uh, chock-a-block of really, really good racing. December the 2nd till March 28th. A lot of big stakes as well. Um, could you kind of give us an overview, sort of talking through the big stakes schedule? Because it definitely feels like there is kind of a flow to the Gulfstream Park Championship. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was uh, the uh, dryer. It is Tuesday after all, everybody. And, uh, you know, Tuesday is laundry day. So uh, apologize for that buzzer in the uh, in the background. But, you yeah, know, I mean, essentially this meet traditionally, and that still goes for 2021, I think first and foremost, when I think of the winter meet at Gulfstream, I think of the the two-year-olds in the month of December who are on the verge of their three-year-old seasons and, you know, that run up to the Florida Derby. And off the bat, you've got that progression of races for newly turned three-year-olds that are hopefully going to be good enough and whose connections are dreaming that they're going to be good enough and special enough to run in the Kentucky Derby, to win a Kentucky Derby and compete in the uh, Triple Crown races. So, you know, case in point with the three-year-olds, we just ran the the uh, Mucho Macho Man Stakes this past uh, Saturday, and that'll lead into the Holy Bull Stakes at the end of January, January 30th. And then four weeks or five weeks after that is the Fountain of Youth. And that is the the real springboard into, I still think, the biggest, most important race of the meet. Some might argue it's the Pegasus, which we'll get to, but I still think there's nothing quite like the Florida Derby. I'll tell you, Naomi, even when I was you know, in New York and working for Naira all those years and would only come down to visit Gulfstream at a weekend at a time to visit my parents who coincidentally live in Florida, um, the Florida Derby is a race I've, I've always, always loved. And um, yeah, we're, we're, building, we're building towards that for sure. Absolutely. There's certainly a really nice uh, three-year-old trajectory running through Florida that builds up so nicely to the Kentucky Derby. I can't believe how fast it's going to be coming up as well. I mean, less than five months away now, aren't we? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, we're less than uh, than five months, which is just uh, bananas. And let's hope uh, again by then, you know, with COVID-19 and every vaccines and everything else. And, uh, you know, again, everybody listening, I hope hope you're safe and your loved ones are safe and you're doing okay. But yeah, let's just hope by the time May rolls around, we could have like some semblance of, of normalcy. But uh yeah, the Derby's great. Start of spring. Uh, yeah, Triple Crown's awesome. So that's, to me, that is the most important element of the winter meet at Gulfstream. But of course, we also have many other big races. And next on the list would be 
the the Pegasus, the two Pegasus races, which are less than three weeks out at this point on January 23rd with the uh, $3 million dirt race and the million dollar turf race. Absolutely. Well, I was going to talk about it a little bit later, but we might as well just touch upon it right now. It'll be the fifth running of the Pegasus State, mile and an eighth. And the invites have gone out, recently released, and it's kind of a you know, a who's who. I hope that they will line up and will attend a charlatan, code of honor. Now, I love Harper's first ride going, of course, Maryland bred, Maryland raced. Uh, I wonderful. Like that. Yeah, I like I just, that because, yeah, right. Yeah, no, because and this held true for my for my 20 years or close to 20 years at Naira and my near four years at Gulfstream. When like one of our horses went on the road somewhere, I'd always, I'm a homer till the day I die. So believe me, there's a lot. If a a Gulfstream horse ships out of town and is running in a stake or wins a stake, I'm always rooting. And when they get it done, I'm always happy with a lot of pride. So I I do appreciate hearing hearing that, Claudia or Naomi. That makes me happy. Yeah, and of course you you have a British Cup mile winner, Nick's Go in there as well. I mean, it it literally is... Kind of a, a who's who. The invite list certainly looks very uh, promising. What is your first thought just looking at uh, the invites that have gone out and, and what can you expect? Well, I mean, I think off the bat, you know, Charlatan needs to start the conversation, essentially. I mean, not just because it's Bob Baffert, but, you know, with how good that horse has been and, and him coming back with that just dominant performance in the Malibu. And it you know, to me, all right. Four weeks in this day and age with a horse of his caliber, that is considered a pretty quick turnaround. And I think that's probably the biggest question on the minds of the connections of Charlatan. But I'm curious your thoughts, because if I'm if I'm in the Charlatan camp, you know, the fact that you're getting a run in a three million dollar race at Goldstream going going a mile and a furlong and not a mile and a quarter. I think that is a huge, huge, huge positive for Charlatan, who I'm still with the Spitestown influence. I, yeah, I'm not saying he can't go a mile and a quarter, but I'd have a lot more confidence in that horse going going a mile and an eighth. Yeah, well, you were mentioning, you know, a, a month turnaround from his uh, Malibu Stakes win at Santa Anita. Well, he had a, a seven-month, I do believe, layoff before that. In a way, to me, a, a month doesn't seem too bad. When you've had a long layoff, he comes back and, and wins so impressively. I just think he's going to build on that. I mean, that's my gut feeling. Yeah. I don't think that should be a, a negative. Yeah, it just seems, again, you know, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, even just working in that New York press box with all the old-time riders, who many of which, unfortunately, have passed on. I feel like when I first became a fan of the game in the mid-'90s, I got holy bull. Cigar in 95 went 10 for 10 yeah, and shipped all over the country. Skip away then came along. You know, good horses actually race more than, than four times a year or five times a year. So, uh, no, it's a very good point. And I would love, because I feel like 15 years ago, this really wouldn't be a conversation. It'd be a month out and no one would blink or think twice that four weeks wasn't, a, 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 you know, exactly. wasn't enough time to run a good horse back and you know lo and behold charlton would be in the pegasus so uh let's let's go with that thought because i'd love to see him run in person and and what do you think does does baffert bring although he's been you know kind of 
pushing the, the, the Saudi headline. Do you, do you come back with Mucho Gusto uh, to a track that he obviously loved last January when he won the Pegasus? I mean, I, if, if, if it was my horse, I would prefer to stay with a track that clearly suits him very well. And I know that, of course, Bob Bafford went to Saudi before. Now, I, I'm just a little bit, you know, see, I don't want to knock the Saudi cup, but it's just the, the whole saga um, last year, of course, with them not having paid out the first prize money yet. I, I just get, yeah, hmm, I would prefer to go here. Let's just keep it at that, trying to stay political politically correct here yeah no, I'm, fine. I'm yeah i'm not the biggest fan of going to the saudi cup this year like i thought it was very intriguing last year and i completely understood why, why people wanted to go mm-hmm. i know what they're trying to do out there and i think it's wonderful because looking at it from a sporting point of view uh, saudi saudi arabia is still behind uh, the uae and i dare say that dubai has grown exponentially in a lot of different factors because of their growth of horse racing as well, because we allowed them uh, to kind of up their game because of the sporting events that they're hosting. So in that way, I don't want to knock Saudi Arabia, but I still struggle with some of the humanitarian aspect of it as well. And then, you know, the whole, I, the whole thing with maximum security and then everything that kind of happened that year, I, I'd be more conservative here and say, why don't you just go back to, to the, Pegasus again. I mean, clearly it worked out well last year. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a, I'm, I tend to be a, a pragmatist. So, uh, you know, staying at home and shipping from, from Southern Cal to Southern Florida, as opposed to having to go from Southern Cal to uh, Saudi Arabia, I'm with you. It just, it makes, makes a lot of sense. It's a little less money, but that horse was good down here last winter, you know, and continuing on with who was invited and who was definitely running and who's committed because we don't know if we're going to get one both or no Baffert horses you know if 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 charlatan doesn't show up here uh, you know looking at this list of the the 12 invites I gotta think tax is going to be favored and uh, the tax we saw win the Harlan's holiday stakes a few weeks ago down here for Danny Gargan he just seems like he looked and and just ran like this is almost like tax 2.0 or 3.0. Like this horse has finally grown up. He always had ability, but the tax I saw in the Harlan's holiday was way more dominant and just stronger and better than he's ever been throughout his career. Yeah. Well, he, of course he was on, you know, the Derby trail and, and he was doing quite nicely. He was a Jim Dandy as well. Yeah. Won the Jim Dandy fourth in the, the Belmont stakes and clearly did well after a lave. I feel like you're right here uh, that he's now progressing uh, a lot and maybe getting better as he's getting older, because I know that they had high hopes for him, but maybe as a three-year-old, he just didn't kind of get to that anticipated level just yet. So I love your take on it saying that tax 2.0 has kind of arrived because, you know, that, that would make things interesting. I, I mean, I'm still kind of on the, like, yes, I think uh, his Harlan, Harlan's holiday stakes uh, look very, very good. Just still kind of I waiting and seeing how I he's know. progressing. Well, yeah, because I guess the bottom line is succinctly consistency has not been part of his repertoire. You know, he's had the talent, but he's been a little bit of a hit and miss horse who could fire a big one and then not show up yeah. for two or three races. But I did, you know, looking at the list, you know, tax, assuming if Charlatan comes, he's going to be favored. Tax will be 
potentially third choice because also, and I'm remiss not to mention him prior, you got Nick's go, who's obviously confirmed for Brad Cox. And if Charlatan doesn't come, I mean, clearly Nick's go, not tax is going to be favored. And I'm wondering, you know, Naomi, your, your thoughts with a horse who's just been, I mean, obviously that, that trainer changed to Brad Cox. I mean, how, how good is Nick's go been? I mean, he's just been progressing with every single start. It seems, uh, what was it? Three, a consecutive victories before he went to Brad Cox and then he kind of just took it to the to the next level. He was so impressive in that Breeders' Cup mile at, at Kenya. I remember seeing him and, and he's a he's a Maryland bred as well, which is another sort of home oh, team here. And I, I didn't realize that, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. He's a Maryland bred. He's by, by painter. painter. Is he by painter, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's you know what with, with Nick's go, I feel like there's still more. I, I actually think that we could see cool. more of him still. And I'm really excited to see how he's going to progress. And of course, Brad Cox, having gone from strength to strength as a trainer, is the right person to, to guide a horse like that, I believe. So certainly one that I would, would be on the lookout for. I'd love to see, you know, when, when you're looking at a field, the, the way it ends shaping up, I always love seeing once the post positions are out, who's lining up, just kind of, you know, looking at how does the speed set up, what, what works well for, for different kind of horses. But I definitely have a big sort of interest in Nick's goal. And I, I like him a lot. Actually, the horse that I find intriguing in this spot, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is a code of, code of honor coming in here for Suge McGahee. I used to always say his last name wrong, which is hilarious. Everyone used to always tease me about that. But, uh, yeah. you know, a, a really interesting horse. I remember seeing him um, win the Travers and then that Jockey Club Gold Cup um, well, end up victory with that Vino Rosso interference. Bad DQ. That was a race. bad DQ, but Vino, Vino got his revenge and I was yes. there to do it. <laughs> A man Rapoli, uh, my wife and I were lucky to be at the Breeders' Cup with the Rapolis at Santa Anita. So, yeah, Vino won the big one and obviously was champion older horse. But I- I'm with you on Code of Honor because, look, it's always it's always nice to have Shug running in races like this, especially with a horse who is a, a Travers winner. Now, as far as his form in 2020, certainly didn't run poorly Code of Honor. And I feel like he might, in a comparison, be a little more... I don't want to compare him to Tax, but I've always thought Code of Honor was a horse who had a a shade of inconsistency, too, even though he usually hits the board. You know what I mean? It feels like he doesn't always fire his best shot. Well, and if you well, you look back at his last race, uh, the Clark Stakes, where he got toppled by Boat Express. Not saying that Boat Express is not a good horse, but I, I would have expected... Cone of Honor, just on sheer quality, maybe to take yeah. that race. That would have been my uh, guess here, and that didn't happen. So I, I do think you're kind of right that Code of Honor on his day can be very, very strong, yep. but you have to get him on his day. And maybe at the time as a three year old, I, I think he had a better season, you know, just with that jockey club gold cup and then the traverse i'm with yes. you squire and then you know i mean he got the gold cup via the dq but even if he wasn't put up in that race he ran gigantic yeah yes. he's a horse that i guess again that's the best way to put it just as a four-year-old didn't run that many times a and i get the season was was screwed up and, a, and shortened with with covid and all that stuff but yeah i i if you had asked me this a year ago if we were talking naomi in february 2020 like code of honor would have been a horse that i thought could have knocked out 
you know, at least a couple of grade ones and might be in the conversation for a horse of the year type award. You know what I mean? Given, given how good he was as a three-year-old and we didn't see that version of him last year in 2020. No, I, I agree with you. I feel like he didn't run badly in, in, in 2020. It just, he never kind of, you know, took it to that next level. He's still a very good horse, but you know, like to, for him to then come back in the Pegasus and topple some of these horses that are in terrific form, I definitely mm-hmm. would love to see what he does. I wouldn't say he's going to be, you know, my, my top choice in that, but I'm just intrigued by him. Absolutely yeah. intrigued to see what kind of horse Sugar is going to bring. Uh, what about a, uh, True Timber, he's also on the list. A very strong winner last time at Cigar Mile winner. But that was on the 5th of December. But just a, you know, Jack Sisters and Calumet Farm trainee that certainly seems to have hit his stride. Yeah, good horse. Uh, you know, kind of like, uh, I don't know, kind of like a throwback in a lot of respects. He's been around, it seems, for a number of years. And I think if he does run, I think this might be the third straight Pegasus for true timber. So got to appreciate his durability and the fact that he's tried consistently, you know, the grade ones and the big boys over the last few seasons. Um, you know, in hindsight, cigar mile, uh, Clearly, performer didn't run his race. That was not a vintage cigar. And that I love the cigar mile. And cigar is my second favorite horse of all time. So it's like I'm not going out of my way to knock the cigar mile. But I think most people would say it wasn't a vintage cigar mile. No. Field. There were a few scratches, the wet yeah. track. It, it was good to see True Timber get get that grade one because he's been he's just been a horse that is been very ambitiously placed throughout his career mm-hmm. and it's nice to see him again getting back to our point with charlatan that a lot of these good horses don't run all that often it was cool to see a horse who has run often and has has not been thrown to the wolves but you know has often been a pretty big price in those grade ones for him to still stick around and finally get that grade one win was great and an, another sidebar you know this for this is my first winter let me rephrase that. This is Jack Sisterson's, the trainer of True Timber, his first winter being stabled or having a string on this circuit at Gulfstream Park. And, and Jack is somebody that worked for Doug O'Neill prior. And uh, when he had Nyquist and stuff as a three-year-old, I hadn't moved down here yet. So having even interviewed Jack a few times here, Jack Sisterson, this meet, I got to tell you, I admired him as a horseman, but having gotten to know him a little bit and, and done some interviews, I, I really like him a lot. So uh, the you know, true timbers, like an e- I'm not saying I would pick him in the Pegasus, but he's, he's an easy route. You know, sometimes you just, you click with, with, with the, with a trainer or a jockey, you know, on a, on a professional, but also personal level. And uh, I'm glad Jack's having a lot of success and making a name for himself. Cause I, I just think he's like a really sincerely good person, a good guy with a lot of class. Yeah, he certainly is. And just getting back to what you were saying about the, um, the quality of the cigar mouth, but I mean, not to knock any of the horses in there, but when a horse like, an awesome New York bread, in Mr. In New York bread, excuse me, in Mr. Buff, goes off at like three ninety five odds. Hmm. As I just got the chart in front of me here, no offense, it's not the big, the best of renewal when a horse like that takes money. Who's a great, like he's a great horse, but in like just the quality of the field, I, I have to agree with you. 
that it wasn't really there. But that, that, you know, I still love the race and I'm still very happy for True Timber. And as you mentioned, Jack Sisterson, who clearly is is making, uh, you know, paving his own way. And actually that ties in really well with the question that I wanted to ask you earlier, but didn't get the chance because we were just kind of rolling along to the Pegasus World Cup. Because there are a few fresh races in the training ranks uh, at Gulfstream Park uh, this year, it seems. Uh, how's the training colony shaped up? Yeah, no, I mean, the colony down here, much like the jockeys, the training colony has been been super, super deep. I mean, you got the obvious the obvious names and faces and stuff like that. I mean, clearly, Todd Pletcher, who's won 16 Gulfstream winter meet titles. I mean, he's been on a major run. I'm looking at the stats right now for the meet. He's already got 21 wins from 70 starters. And... um you know, has a number of horses that will get to invited to the Pegasus turf. Um, Safi Joseph Jr., who's become a friend in my four years down here. He's having a good meet. Mike Baker, Danny Gargan's been in Fuego at 8 for 14. But I wanted to mention also, you know, as far as the depth of this training colony goes, you know, there's some younger guys and gals that are that are doing a good job. Uh, Carlos David is one that comes to mind. Uh, got, I've gotten to know, uh, Carlos pretty well because he's been a, you know, year round guy down here, uh, for the last two years or so he's, uh, out on his own doing a great job and is good as far as claiming horses and moving up horses, but has done well with the few two-year-olds and younger horses that, that he's been given. Uh, Ken Sweezy's another guy who worked for Christophe Kamant and Jimmy Jerkins and now out on his own and had a really good meet during the uh, Gulfstream Park West, the old call to race course meeting, and already has picked up seven wins uh, during the championship meet, which is great. Um, let's scroll down. A couple other people. I wanted to mention, too, uh, Kelsey Danner, who had worked for Rusty Arnold. I, I don't know if she's a Kentucky native, but uh, she's she's got a year-round presence now on this circuit down here at Gulfstream. And I think Kelsey is just a very good horsewoman. And, uh, you know, just a couple of, like, younger people that come to mind that I'm glad they're getting success that if anyone's listening, you know, they should you know not be afraid if you like one of their horses to make a bet on them because, uh, you know, the three or four trainers I just named, they might not be household names like a Todd Pletcher, but they're they're very, very, very good trainers. I definitely think that also is a testament to Gulfstream Park being the championship meet and everyone wanting to have horses there and be competitive there. And the fact that you're, uh, you are probably one of the few, few aside from Aussie on the West Coast where, where you can have turf racing. And, you know, that kind of ties in really nicely with us talking about the Pegasus, Pegasus World Cup turf, which is, you know, the complementary race to the Pegasus World Cup, mile and 316. But I think it's by, by the looks of the invitations. I mean, I'm looking forward to this. I think this is a really intriguing renewal. Um, you mentioned Top Pletcher has a couple going into this. Uh, Colonel Liam, Largent, Social Paranoia. Um, start me off with the horse that you have most interest in. Uh, and, you know, it's funny looking at this list for the uh, Pegasus Turf invites. I was saying to my wife earlier, uh, I think, again, of the horses, the first 12 in order of preference, I think Colonel Liam is going to be favored. Uh, you know, one of, like you were saying, a bunch, you know, a bunch of horses, what Todd, what does Todd have three in the Three, main? Yeah. Yeah. So Argent, social paranoia and Colonel Liam. 
yeah, so I, you know, looking at this list, it's a it's a domestic list. There's no euros or anything on it, and um, it would be a an excellent betting race. Um, there's no bricks bricks and mortar in the field. Who won the first the inaugural Pegasus Turf here a couple of winters back? Um, and there's no you know monster from Europe looking to come over. Um, but Colonel Liam, we know he cost a lot, cost over a million bucks, and. Um, Seems like he's got a pretty, and I'm a part. It seems like he's got a pretty big uh, fan club, and he he won a uh, was it an allowance race? Oh no, he won the Tropical Park Derby a few weeks ago, prepping for the uh, Pegasus Turf. And I don't know, judging, I, I don't have uh, past performances, Naomi, in front of me. Just going off the list of names, I think he unequivocally will be the favorite, uh, assuming there's no like crazy European that shows up out of the blue. I think Colonel Liam is going to be the horse to beat in the uh, Pegasus turf. Yeah, I remember when he won the Tropical Park Derby, uh, 26th of December it was, uh, as we say, second Christmas Day. I don't think that's a thing here in the United States, but in my books it is. Um, he, I just saw people on Twitter going absolutely mad, saying, yep. well, this is it. This horse yep. is back, and, and this is just going to be you know, a step up to so much better. So I completely understand you thinking that most likely – he will be, you know, the high horse. The horse is going to take a lot of money going in this year's renewal of the uh, Pegasus World Cup turf. And uh, be, as you mentioned, there aren't any euros coming in here. I mean, I dare say, of course, with you know the pandemic and everything that's going on, I thought the Breeders' Cup meeting was incredible for the fact that they did still manage to get so many euros involved and that they did so well. I mean, me as a European was like, yes, guys, come on, <laughs> keep yeah. going. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, I, I dare say, before we move on to some of the others in this race, I was actually just thinking about the Pegasus World Cup itself and then the Pegasus World Cup turf that, of course, it this sounds kind of silly. I'm not knocking it, but, you know, it's called the Pegasus World Cup. But I dare say it doesn't really attract the foreign entries that, for instance, you would get in a Dubai World Cup. Uh, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, is, is that me? I'm not trying to knock it a little bit, but no, in a way... No, you know. I think I think you're 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 right in in a lot of respects. And going back, I can't remember what the purse was the first year that we ran it, which was back in this will be the third Pegasus Turf. So we had bricks and mortar Zulu Alpha last year, and whoever gets it done in 2021, I think it'll be Colonel Liam. But um, yeah, I think the the original, again, the original sort of think tank was you might get some some euros and stuff like that. I'm talking like major group one quality horses that might stay in training or, or take a shot coming over here. And we, I mean, we had the first year, I think there was a, a filly or a mare from Japan. Um, Coolmore had ma- magical, not magical. They had uh, magic wand, right? Magical was the one that ran second to enable in the Breeders' Cup turf, right? And then yeah. there was Magic Wand, who was very good, but not at that level, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not getting that, right? I've got that straight. I sometimes get them confused. So, like, she ran, I think she ran it in it both years. But, yeah, off the top of my head, just seeing the domestic horses, uh, you know, invited, and again, you know, with COVID and travel and all that stuff, um, it's understandable, but yeah, off the top of my head, uh, this might be, if I was to line up the first year, the second year and the third year, I might, and it's going to be a great race. I'm not knocking it either, but this, 
you know, there's nobody that I look at this list and go, oh my God, I, you know, wow, you know, yeah. oh, I can't believe that horse is coming. It's a solid list, going to be a great betting race and a terrific race, but there's no like, there's no bricks and mortar in the field. Mm-hmm. Although Colonel Williams pretty good. Yeah, he is. So I just quickly looked it back up, just wanted to double check. So Magic Wand ran in both of the renewals and both finished second in those. Right. I mean, talking about, I wouldn't say bad luck. It's just, you know, you come in here and, and she obviously is a very, very tough race mare. I think when she came here January 2020, she had actually been to Hong Kong before that, where she ran second in the Hong Kong Cup. Amazing. Amazing. And then before Amazing. that, she had won the McKinnon Stakes, the Group 1 McKinnon. So she's clearly, you know, this is a testament to Aidan O'Brien who travels these mares all over and did so similar with Magical this year as well. And they just keep on running. So, yeah, I'd, I would have loved to have seen a, a Euro in there, uh, of course. And even in the, you know, the Pegasus World Cup, it's always great to see horses that say from Japan or, or anywhere else coming over as well. But I guess maybe this year that makes it. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering again, like you know, again with the 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 COVID mess and just you know travel logistically speaking. I wonder if they just said, you know what, let's just keep it U.S. this year for 2021, and you know, let's hope uh, we'll hope for a great day of racing. And again, that January 23rd card, aside from the two Pegasus races, I mean, it's just all graded stakes. It's one of those. You know, major Super Saturdays. So we're we're gonna we're gonna be in good shape. Two great races, and you know, hopefully, you and I next time we uh, talk on the podcast, let's hope we're talking about a, a Pegasus Dirt race for the fifth time. They're running it where you had Charlatan, Code of Honor, Nick's Go, and Tax off the top of my head. All four of those horses in the starting gate. I mean, that would be incredible because yeah, we were mentioning the invite list. And for the Pegasus World Cup, I mean, to me, it's a mouth-watering race. If they do line up these type of horses, this is exactly what you want to see in a race like this. So very, very excited for that. But uh, going back to the Pegasus World Cup, aside from Colonel Liam, who kind of pricked your ears a little bit in there? I know it's early and I know we don't have PPs yet. So we're kind of just, you know, guesstimating here or just looking at horses that might interest us. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that and totally cool to, uh, you know, mention a few other horses. Uh, I got two and being when you consider my roots and background, uh, no surprise there. I'm happy to see Shug has got breaking the rules healthy and back on the right track because, you know, the, maybe the biggest, uh, last out race heading into the Pegasus turf will be the Fort Lauderdale stakes run in the middle of December. And uh, Largent upset that race uh, from off the pace and ran very well in that spot and paid a big price for Todd Pletcher. But uh, two horses that uh, were right behind him, I thought breaking the rules, took a step forward and is starting to get back to where I thought he might be. I really thought he could be earlier in his career, like the second coming of point of entry. And it it just hasn't, hasn't worked out that way. But he's got a lot of just he's got a lot of talent and has gotten healthy. So he's one. The other is uh, is Doswell, and I love 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 the fact that um, that uh, uh, Joe Allen has given uh, Barkley Tag some horses like uh, Doswell. I mean that's really intriguing that horse coming in. Of course, most people thinking of Barkley Tag just as Tis the Law, who's clearly well recently retired, which I thought was a great shame. I would have loved to see. 
tis the law, hopefully step it up even further uh, in his four-year-old season. But Doswell, that's uh, he's he's an interesting horse coming into this. So uh, how do you how do you rate his chances? Yeah, I think pretty good because you know he was a horse uh, that was a, a fairly tough luck, like bad trip, and just seemed to be a, a snake bitten. Let me punch him in real fast. Maiden. It feels like in my mind. Let me punch this up real fast. Yeah, so he's a Giants causeway for Joe Allen. And yeah, he's only two for eight. Yeah, he, I mean, it took him forever to break his maiden. And then Barkley gets him from Chad Brown, and he ran some big races with Chad. But then Barkley gets him, wins that allowance race at Belmont in early October, and then was second in the Fort Lauderdale. I wonder if you just have a horse who's had some starts and fits and setbacks and stuff like that, who's healthy, massive pedigree, as many of these Joe Allen homebreds tend to have. In fact, they all tend to have that. And, uh, you know, Barkley, what can you say about Barkley, man? The guy is just a a great, great, great trainer. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad uh, a major owner and breeder sent some horses to to Barkley. And uh, I think Doswell will be sitting on a a big race. Yeah, I'd love to see... A horse like that do well for Barkley as well, as because in a way, you know, everything that kind of in the end happened with Tis the Law later on, you know, in the classic, and it kind of, I do remember, I don't know if I was just reading it or it was actually said that you know Barkley tag mentioned, you know, and now it's gonna be as if you know, oh, everything that happened with Tiz was for nothing, you know, his Travers win, his Belmont win because it didn't happen you know, in the Derby and then he came back in the classic and he didn't win there either as if, you know, now it's just all going to be authentic. Now it's all just going to be the talk about that horse, which I think is a shame because I think Tis the Law was a very, very talented horse that I thought was going to be even better as yep. a four-year-old because he he wasn't like, you know, some horses they come across as just being young and still need development. I don't think he wasn't developed, but I did think that he still had some more maturing to do. I like to think that I was a big uh, Tis the Law fan, still am, obviously. I mean, the day, and we're, you know, I'm glad we kind of, in a roundabout way, just are mentioning him through through Barkley and, uh, the you know, Doswell being invited to the turf race, uh, you know, because I guess it's been close to a week since they announced his retirement. And I'll I'll just say, I mean, I tweeted, and it's the truth, outside of... um, American Pharaoh, I can't think of a horse that's, you know, at that level that's been running the last few years that I liked as much as I liked his the law. I was just a huge fan of his. Wow, that's the, quite the compliment, Jason. Yeah, yeah, the Rapoli horses don't count, like Vino Rosso and stuff. We'll take them out of the equation. But yeah, I, um, at that level, I tend to find myself these days really getting enamored and enraptured with like, your bread and butter claimers, the horses that actually race and race consistently, like com- combinations of horse that comes to mind that won eight races down in Florida in 2020. But uh, yeah, I really, 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 really liked Tis the Law a lot. And uh, if you were to ask me, yeah, American Farrow in 2015, and he is, he's right on that list. I'm not saying he was as good as American Farrow, but as far as me, like, being excited to see him race at that sort of at that zenith, yeah, he's uh, my second favorite horse in the last uh, few years to to come along. Wait, so who was your favorite, Vino? 
Uh, well, I guess Vino would be up there. Uh, yeah, he'd probably be number one. And just watching him come back as a four-year-old, and because he was a good, good three-year-old, obviously won the Wood Memorial. But you know, you know, when everybody knows, very close relationship with Mike Rapoli. So to see Mike have a horse of that stature and that success, and win—I mean, win the Breeders' Cup Classic—and that. That was my first ever trip, not to sidebar too much, to Santa Anita Park. So to go out there for the race and to be at Santa Anita and to get the finally, after all those years, to get to finally hike those mountains in behind those San Gabriel Mountains and then, you know, to leave the Breeders' Cup with a classic win with Vino. Yeah, that was, uh, that's uh, not easy to top for sure. I I agree on that front. That was my first ever uh, Breeders' Cup experience in general and i had remember seeing vino rosso train at belmont park leading up to him and i thought he was phenomenal so i was over yep. the moon to see him get that win and so impressively as well for tall so yeah definitely sidebarring here we'll move back to uh what's going on in florida well, i, I, I want to not to cut you off i tend to i can be a little verbose and i can be a little chatty just like you miss naomi so if naomi and i have gotten a little long-winded not the entire podcast <laughs> i do apologize and we definitely appreciate everybody hanging in with us here I mean, that's what you get with two broadcasters, right? We can talk for days. Yep, no no doubt about it. I mean, forget about it. Like Acacia and I are always joking with Ronnie. Ronnie's like, the two of you, forget about it. You could just talk and talk and talk, especially when it, when it uh, you know, pertains to horse racing. You know, my, uh, my number one passion in life, I know you love it too, and uh, it's been such a, a, a driving, driving force in my life for uh, – Getting close to 30 years, you know, 2023 will be 30 years since that first ever trip to Belmont. And, uh, you know, it'll be my favorite thing till I die. That's uh, incredible. Also, you're aging yourself so badly with that statement. I am. Dude, I will be 43 next month, which uh, is is mind-blowing to me. Yeah, 43 years old, but... uh, you know, if I could sound a little immodest and uh, I got to thank my mom, you know, I think I've held up uh, pretty well. Yeah, I get mistaken uh, to be a little younger than uh, than in my early 40s. So got to got to thank mom for that. I've got to say, I thought you were a little younger as well. So I'm, I'm giving you, you this. Yeah, I'm 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 with everyone else saying that you, you don't you don't look it. So uh, keep doing that uh, sports regime of yours with your wife, because that seems to be uh, making you hold up quite well. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, love drinking water, try to get enough sleep, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I hit the uh, the jackpot, uh, you know, meeting Christina and then marrying her. Uh, we just celebrated three years of marriage uh, last month, December 19th, which is just, just crazy, but she's also like, you know, not only just the best and, I mean, smart, beautiful, just amazing personality, uh, she's also like a, a five-star chef and baker. So uh, I'm definitely uh, eating well for sure here in, in uh, northern Fort Lauderdale. Huh, you certainly have hit the jackpot there. Yep, <laughs> yep. Normal. You got that right. Better than I... uh, any Rainbow Six or anything or pick six score. That's for sure. Oh, you can't say that with your guaranteed pools of over a million. Hey, certainly, yeah, right. you want to hit that too? <laughs> no, I want to hit. I want it all, Naomi. I want it all. And uh, yeah, no, as you and I talk on January the 4th, uh, yeah, the guarantee, uh, like even tomorrow, whenever, 
even if someone doesn't hear this the day after, I mean, it's 1.4 million on January 5th. So uh, that guarantee, or January 6th, rather. So um, that guarantees a, a big one at Gulfstream Park. Yeah, I'm always looking at your, your guaranteed pool, pools and whatever betters are putting into it. And it's just absolutely huge, a continuous over a million type of stuff, which, of course, we don't have that frequently down in Maryland, except when it is uh, Preakness week, which is super exciting and coming up shortly again. But uh, let's quickly talk a little bit more about what's coming up next weekend, January 16, which is your Sunshine Million series. So you have the Sunshine Classic, the Sprint, the Turf, it is a mare turf. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with those series, uh, could you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, that series now in this day and age uh, is about, it's like a, a, a championship day for Florida breads, for, you know, for Florida breads. And uh, I don't have the full numbers in front of me, but I think just in terms of, you know, metrics and stuff like that, I think Florida probably is second behind Kentucky just in terms of output as far as the number of, uh, you know, foals born and born and raised in Ocala. And uh, that's a that's a day where you can you know see the best of the best uh, Florida breads around and you know going through and just seeing a list of the many Eclipse Award winning and Hall of Fame uh, worthy uh, Florida breads over the years affirmed Holy Bull um, there's been been a lot of lot of great lot of great uh, Florida breads so yeah no that's always a day and it's it's kind of it's not the claiming crown. It's not even close to being the claiming crown, but along those lines, you know, Naomi, where you're talking in a lot of those races, especially the turf races, you're probably talking, you know, 12 horse fields that are super competitive, fun to handicap and, and even tougher to bet and, and win at, which is, which is what we love. Do do you have a, a bit of a tip for us for the sunshine classic coming up? Yeah, let's look. Actually, do you have the uh, nominations in front of you by any I chance? Do. Yeah, I do. Do you want me to run? Oh, rattle, rattle, do me a favor. Like, just start. Go down the list for me. So we have Glory of Florida, Last Judgment, Lord Barner, Noble Drama, Quinan, Red Crescent, Roman Empire, Scar, Turn on the Magic, and Well Defined going into it. All right. Well, that's, so that's all the that, numbers I've got here for the 18th yeah. running of the Sunshine Classic. And for what's that? Upward, one mile and eight. And for two, 200,000, what's the purse on that race? Uh, 75,000. Oh, so yeah, I wonder with COVID and everything, they've, I, they've uh, I think they cut had back to, yeah. a little bit on yeah. those on those races. That was definitely more, I think it was worth more than 75. But yeah, off that list, if I had to give out a horse, uh, it's Noble Drama, to the cows come home. He doesn't win every time, but he he's a very, very talented older Florida bred that likes Gulfstream. Uh, Dave Fox and Natalie Fox have done a, a great job uh, campaigning him the last few years, and he's been a little unlucky. His last couple of starts uh, got off uh, very poorly and was basically bugged. It wasn't his fault in his last start at Tampa Bay Downs. And the race Kanane beat him at Gulfstream Park West. It was just a fluky, sloppy track. One of those like sloppy track upset wins that uh, I still can't believe Kanane beat him. So yeah, no, off the names you read me there with the uh, classic horses in the in the Millions Classic, noble drama all the way. I love that. I, I have to agree with you. When it comes to sloppy tracks, you definitely 
can see a fair few upsets. We we had a, a bit more of a track with moisture in it over the last few days at Laurel Park. And we had multiple like double digit winners mm-hmm. that day. It was just uh, whichever horse preferred the going and could kind of get over it uh, tended to get into the winner's circle. Um, I know I've, I've held you here for quite a while, but I definitely still have a couple of more questions. So we'll kind of run through it. Of course, through 2020, Gulfstream was kind of the shining beacon that kept on going despite all of it. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Now, Jason, one second. I'm going to like not pause it, but like make a note. I need to grab my charger because my laptop is dying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do that. I don't want to lose you at this point down the home stretch. All right, I got some water. Um, I got my uh, thermos filled up here. Been uh, this has been great, honestly. Yeah, no. Any everybody that's hung in this far, it is much appreciated. And seriously, Naomi, I mean, if you and I started talking about, I don't know, like different different divisions, the sprint division, and uh, looking ahead to other big race, forget about it. We could be here for another six hours, uh, yapping away. Oh, we we absolutely could. We could, well, not even to mention that before we started recording, we were already talking for, I think, 15 minutes and we were kind of like, we have to start recording, which that kind of tends to happen frequently. And sometimes I just have to say, let's take it to the recording because we can just discuss this on air. Although, you know, we're always uh, more prevalent to be a little bit more personal when it's not going on the airways, which is completely understandable. But yeah, let's... um, Well, I'll... Actually, let me, because I, I, what we were talking about partly was tonight is a clean sheet night. And I was saying to you, is there anything better than clean sheets on your bed when you get in after a long day? And that's, that's one of like the, the great, the great, like simple things in life, clean sheet night. I've always loved it since I was a little kid. Exactly. And then I was admitting that I'm trying to do it every weekend. Sometimes I forget making myself <laughs> sound like the absolute slob that I'm not. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> no, we know you're not a slob. Absolutely not. And you're doing a great job. Great job at Laurel. And uh, yeah, hopefully down the uh, down the line, you and I uh, will get a chance to work together for sure. I hope so, too. Yeah, I dare say it would have been wonderful if I could have come up for something like the Pegasus. But now with all the heavy quarantining measures in place, that makes yep. it very tricky to adhere to, you know, a normal schedule of being at Laurel Park and then being at Gulf Stream Park and then coming back uh, Makes it a little bit tricky, I'm afraid. I wish that wasn't the case. But, you know, I dare say uh, hopefully next year we can all, uh, I don't know, resume some form of normalcy. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. I'm saying this with a big, you know, if, of course, the, the vaccine coming out makes us all very hopeful that that's going to be the case. But, you know, I'm not biting my tongue. Like I'm sitting here with a bit more of a wait and see approach. I know that for the, um, maybe you can give me some info on that for the Pegasus. They were hoping to get fans in attendance, right? Is that still the aim? Yeah, that is still, yeah, no, they still like PegasusWorldCup.com is the website. And, uh, you know, obviously protocols and, you know, safety protocols and, and that stuff's paramount as far as, social distancing and not having people on top of one another, but no, there's, there's limited spots available and tickets currently on sale and a number of uh, different pricing options. So if you have any interest, I believe me, like I, I, I miss 
and I'm just when when it comes down to it, I'm just a lucky fan, and I I try never to lose sight of that. I've been you know I've been very fortunate with opportunity and support throughout my career, but I'm I'm just a lucky fan. So like I miss having the fans at the track. So if you're really chomping at the bit, and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you probably miss going to the racetrack and you're down here or can make it down to Howendale for January 23rd, Gulfstream will be open and you can buy your tickets for the Pegasus at PegasusWorldCup.com. Well, they say there are a few that are definitely chomping at the bit. It's, it's been so long now that people haven't been able to attend the races when they're not owners. I know that we've had, uh, thankfully, the ability to facilitate owners returning to the racetrack again, which I think is wonderful because, you know, they to see their own horses run, the horses that they're invested in, they pay the bills for, they're emotionally attached to, I think is is uh, pivotal to having a healthy horse racing industry because, you know, owners are, you know, are one of the few that help us make this all happen. So I'm glad that they're there. But of course, you know, it's it's been tricky without fans. How's that been like for you down in Gulfstream? Yeah, no, I mean, we've had, again, with owners, like limited capacity and, uh, you know, like high, you know, I guess higher tier players for express bet that, you know, that bet bet on track, which is great. We need more of them. I mean, the game, I just, uh, the game could use more of them, you know, like big betters and hardcore racing fans. So, you know, you wind up seeing a lot of the same, uh, same faces. And that's been the case at Gulfstream since going back whenever we started allowing fans and owners back in, it was sometime in the middle of the summer, so, uh, and it's always great seeing the familiar faces and stuff like that. But, you know, I miss having, especially this time of year, you know, and having been in a native New Yorker myself and having worked at Naira for so long, it was, it's been great the last uh, four winters down here of having people that annually make their trip to Florida and come down here and go to Gulfstream Park. So you are missed and, uh, you know, absolutely thinking of you and uh, hopefully we can do it again, uh, you know, next winter, but I'm hoping to see a lot of people I haven't been able to see in a lot of time with the, uh, with the Pegasus on January 23rd. Yes, I hope so. So I'm just getting back to my earlier question that throughout 2020 Gulfstream Park was one of the few race courses that continue to operate without any breaks whatsoever. I knew that we had to um, take a break at at Laurel Park where I was, but Gulfstream Park has continued through all of that. I mean, how was that like for you? And of course, I know that the protocols in place were absolutely superb and very stringent and still are, but I mean, great credit there to all the team. Yeah. I mean, and that goes for, you know, everybody on the backstretch. I mean, it all basically emanates from, from Bill Badgett, who's the general manager. And, um, you know, I mean, I've known personally, you know, Billy, who obviously was a, was a trainer before he got into the managerial side of, uh, of, of, of thoroughbred racing. And, uh, even after I was hired in, uh, and started full-time for the Stronic Group in May of 2017. I can remember maybe had been on the job for two or three weeks. So, I mean, we're talking almost four years ago, and I can specifically remember saying to PJ Campo at the time, who was the the VP at that time of Gulfstream, if I had my own business or had my own company, 
you know, Bill, ba- you know, Billy Badgett is is some is like an absolute must hire. You'd want that guy on your team. So, I mean, he's a, a great person to work for and work with, as is Dave Joseph, who's who's my boss. And, uh, you know, everyone adhered to the protocols and uh, we were able to, you know, without any any, uh, you know, covid cases, we were able to, you know, separate the jockeys and spread out the jocks room and uh, without any fans on track we were able to run through not only the second half of March, but April and May when everywhere else outside of basically like, what was it like Fonner park and like one or two other, you know, smaller tracks. And it was, it was, uh, I think it was, uh, it was just a good thing, not only for the industry and anybody involved uh, down here in Florida, but it was, uh, it was good to give people an outlet where, uh, you know, they could look forward to something, uh, something they love like thoroughbred racing each and every day at a time when I mean it was like a war going on like this invisible war and something that I don't you know in modern times we've never seen anything like COVID so to have I hate using the word distraction but to have racing to kind of ease your tension and to be able to look forward to that for a few hours each and every day was a very cool and special thing and you know, to be on the air during that whole thing, I, I took a, a lot of lot of pride and uh, was something I didn't take lightly. I knew I was in a in a in a in a pretty pretty special spot, even on a personal level. I know you were saying, you know, distraction as being you know a word that was used frequently, but even though if it's maybe sounding a little bit like a cliche, I think it was pivotal and crucial for people being at home to still have an outlet, still have something to look forward to, something to do for those that wanted to have a little flutter or even more, because in this time now it's been going on for, for this long, you know, if it was only a month of quarantine or a month of lockdown, a month or two, we tend to be able to overcome that. But now when it's coming up to being such a prolonged period I think people do need that and we do need some idea that certain things are still going on and that we have you know something to do I don't think everyone likes reading books at home so you have to do something else too yeah, no. And I love, believe me, I love reading. I, I like playing, I like video games. You know, I love a good movie and music is, uh, is uh, much like racing. I, I've been a music nerd since I was a little kid and love music more than just about any, any other entertainment. But yeah, no, I mean, to have racing and uh, to have it unobstructed down here and to just plow right through, uh, was, was very cool. And, uh, you know, hopefully the game uh, picked up some new fans, you know, as far as everything else being shut down. I'd like to think uh, some people that like to gamble on sports or, you know, play the stock market or whatever, maybe gave racing a try and said, you know, this is this is really, really great. I certainly hope so too. No, not knocking people that read books. I'm a gigantic bookworm myself. Yeah, like, you, strike me love- like book, you strike me as a bookworm. Actually. Oh, okay. You do. you do. Not in a bad, that's not a, that's a compliment actually, but yeah, no, you seem just articulate, like well-read and um, it, it, it comes across that way. Oh, you're being too kind. I, I just love a, a writer taking you into a completely different world and then you come out the other end of it looking at our world that you're currently in differently like that's it's just my escape so I yep. love it but hey getting back to music what is your music taste like you're saying you're um, a big fan you have to tell us now yeah no I'm you know I grew up uh in the 80s so like being first 
introduced outside of like music just from my parents. Like my mom was a huge and is a huge Beatles fan. My dad is uh, like a massive Elvis Presley fan. So there was always music, you know, music was always prevalent in the house growing up. But I also came of age like in the MTV 80s hard rock era. So a lot, you know, like I'm definitely a fan of rock and roll. And I was in high school, like when the whole Seattle, you know, grunge, quote unquote, grunge movement hit with all those great bands. So um, I'm mostly like, like a, a rock guy. Uh, you know, I like some, some heavier metal too. I, I, I do love a lot of uh, electronic music also, like a lot of progressive house. I got into that big time, uh, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands. So, uh, but mostly, mostly, you know, rock and roll, um, for sure. And if I had to pick, you know, if you ask me, oh, what's your favorite, you know, decade or period for music? My my sweet spot is really the 1990s, you know, the early, early 90s through the through the mid 90s, for sure. Oh, I love that. I can't say I have much experience with that period, except from listening to it, of course, uh, years later. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's super interesting. And I dare say this little segment before I let you go has already given some of our listeners more insight into you because, you know, people probably will be listening for insight about Gulfstream, but also who are you? Who's Jason Blewett behind being, you know, the very affable, strong broadcaster at Gulfstream Park? So I have a couple of more like personal questions. Yeah, Um, Yeah. One of them being, I don't know if you have one. Do you have a favorite quote or something that resonates with you and or guides you? Because I know that I, for example, write things on post-it notes sometimes and put them on the wall next to my mirror just to remind myself of certain things. I I like that. I, I may start doing that, and I don't. I feel like uh, I, I feel stupid now that I don't have like a, a favorite quote. So, like, do you have a post? Let me ask you. Let's flip this around. Do you have... Maybe not a favorite quote, but if I asked you what's like the recent sort of reminder as far as like inspiration or something like that, what would it be? Oh, so mine are quite intense. So I'm just like saying that before people think I'm I'm, I'm a a strange person, but mine are quite intense, like reminding me of certain things. For example, um, stop playing small, stop Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, hiding who you are, be be yourself. Mm -hmm. That is one. And then I also have one that says... um, Poison only hurts the vessel that it's in. To never hold a grudge towards other people or to never have that anger, anger towards others because it's only going to hurt you. So right. yeah, sort of, it's quite intense, but it, it helps me to kind of remind myself of those things on the day-to-day basis. And I dare say if you're a broadcaster, sometimes things could get thrown at you and, it, and it's good to kind of stay within yourself and to kind of not... Um, get too affected by things people might say about you or of you, even though they might not know you. I don't know if that's something that you've had to deal with quite frequently. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, um, yeah, I mean, anytime, no matter what you're doing in life, if you're putting yourself out there and in the case of both you and I professionally, you know, we both broadcast and do television for a living. You know, I learned a long time ago that, you know, not, not everybody's going to like you and you know, you, you need to have thick skin. Um, I don't get picked on too much. 
Um, I've been lucky. I think generally speaking, um, I get the vibe, you know, pretty well liked and respected, which is amazing and goes back again to the fact I've been so blessed and lucky to just have so much opportunity, good timing, great opportunity and a lot of support. But, um, no, I mean, those, those, like those quotes and, and like affirmations, they're just a good reminder because no matter what you do in life or your, your station in life, you know, you we're, we're, we're on this journey and, uh, life's, life's not easy. And we're just, I don't know. I just try to like, I don't know. I feel like I have like a very long fuse with people and I feel like, um, you know, everyone's trying to do the best they can just to get through life as, as best as possible. Yeah, exactly. Side note, I, I don't actually, I, I feel quite lucky just like you that in general, I, I don't get too much negativity around me. It's just more for me as a person to grow and to never hold any grudge and to not let things get to me. Because I, I came into this, I, I, I was quite sensitive. Like someone would say something even in jest and I'm like, oh, really? So yeah. it just kind of helps yeah. you to, to deal with that, even though in general, I feel very lucky that I've been surrounded by very strong, wonderful people in this industry, just like you. And I, I don't really have to deal with terrible negativity whatsoever, but it's just for me to kind of, I don't know, help myself uh, develop as a person. So we'll flip this back again on you because I'm mm-hmm. sure that they're listening to know more about you, not about me. Um, what so be- sure of that. Don't be so <laughs> sure of that. <laughs> I, dare, I dare say that we, we should uh, get back to you on that one. Tell us something interesting about yourself that most people wouldn't know. Now, you've been speaking about your wife quite frequently as well as your hobby. So I dare say you've already shared a fair few yep. things. But yep. anything else kind of quirky that we don't know? Um, I love off the top of my head. I Well, I mean, I have... My wife and I have two dogs and a cat, so I am an animal lover, um, which I guess I tend to find a lot of people in racing are animal lovers, uh, fans and, and people that, that work in the industry. Um, I love, let's see, I love my suit collection. I, I love dress clothes, dress shirts, suits, um, I don't know how quirky that is. I told you about loving music. I love reading nonfiction, big nonfiction fan. And, um, you know, let's see anything else kind of wacky. What are we reading? Nonfiction. What what are you reading right now? I am reading right now. I just, hold on. I just started. Let me get the title. Let me flip my Kindle open. I just bought a book. I had heard an interview on NPR. Give me two seconds here. Oh, I heard this interview on NPR about a guy that used to work for the uh, the CIA, I think. And he wrote a book, and it's called The, the Black Banners Declassified, How Torture Derailed the War on Terror After 9-11. And this guy was a part of the CIA and used and 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 was in Guantanamo, Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay and was, you know, basically interviewing all these, you know, Taliban guys that they had captured. And the uh, story just sounded very interesting. So uh, I just bought this book uh, last night and I am going to start reading it tonight. So um, I love reading as far as nonfiction. I love getting back to, you know, being a music junkie. I love reading and there's a gazillion of them out now. I love reading, although they all 
they're all kind of the same. I love reading like rock biographies, you know, uh, you know, people's memoirs. Um, but yeah, no, this story uh, really sounded interesting. And it, you know, in a nutshell, it was basically this guy, he said when they tortured, uh, you know, these captured Taliban people, the torture wouldn't divulge, the Taliban wouldn't divulge more information because they were being punished and being tortured. It was when they wound up building a relationship with them and went at it from like the completely opposite end of the spectrum. That's when these guys started to divulge secrets about who was involved and hideouts and stuff like that. So it's just sounded like a, a pretty cool book, not to mention as somebody who being from Floral Park, I can name three people that unfortunately passed away in 9-11. And I'm not saying I was buddy-buddy with all of them, but two of them I went to high school with. And, uh, you know, those guys are, are never far from my mind. So uh, that I'll give you, uh, next time we do the podcast, I'll give you an update as to how that book was. Wow, yes, please do. Um, I'm sorry to hear that, by the way, if your friends, are, of course, the, you know, what happened in New York, that, you know, went around the world and everyone yep. could see how much, um, effect that had on the United States and everyone close to people that unfortunately did lose their lives that day. So yeah, very sorry to hear that. And as for the book, that sounds incredibly interesting. I, I, I was a psychology major. So uh, listening to you saying the moment they stop torturing them and build a relationship, I, I dare say, because to them, the torture is kind of a badge of honor for them defending their beliefs and defending their cause. Whereas the moment you flip it around, they lower their guard because they're not realizing that they're actually being vulnerable, but because they're building this relationship, which I think is always, always the best course of action in general, but also quite poignant when you mentioned that that works well in that book. So uh, next question, some of these might be a little bit cliche, but I dare say I don't have that many left. Doesn't, you don't strike me as the type of person that worries too much. But if you do, what kind of keeps you up at night? And this could probably be anything from, from your family or from things that are currently happening in the racing industry or globally. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I think in general, well, even in general, something that would keep me up at night or I, I might dwell on would be failure. You know, I I expect, especially after like, my Naira career ended, you know, four years ago. And for the Stronic Group and Gulfstream Park to offer me a job and enable me to move down to Florida and start from scratch a brand new chapter, you know, I expect professionally on the air and off the air, I expect a lot out of myself, you know, as far as being as professional and as not just talking about handicapping, you know, that's part of it. But, you know, like when you do the best advice I got, or one of the best things I was told from Mitch Levitis, who's a, a director up in New York, and I worked with for a number of years, and was a is a great influence on me. He said, you know, get good at doing TV. You know, the handicapping stuff's fine and you want to be prepared, but there's a difference between just going on the air and handicapping and being like a professional broadcaster. And I never forgot that. So, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself to, you know, try to go beyond maybe your, your typical simulcast host, uh, you know, person and, and what they might be capable of. So there's that. 
and I expect a lot out of my coworkers too. Um, the other thing, you know, and uh, I would imagine uh, anybody working in the industry has thought about this. Uh, you know, it's been been a rocky couple of years. I mean, I, I see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and it's always going to be an ongoing process. But, you know, as far as a, a changing culture within the game, but, you know, from from 2018, Naomi, up until now, it's it's been a been a rocky couple of years for thoroughbred racing and you know something you you love more than anything has been the driving force in my life since the summer of 1993 you know uh to see it to see it you know battered and on the defensive and 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 so much you know the the news being so negative most of the time and and really bad things too it's it's nerve-wracking you know it's like could my, at some point, could my, my, this is my life's work. And I, I want it to be here, not only on a personal or even maybe selfish note where I'd like to, you know, work the rest of my professional life in the industry. You know, I want, I want thoroughbred racing to last forever and be as strong and as safe as it can be for the rest of time, you know? Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I must admit that that's, of course, something that has kept me preoccupied as well, uh, kind of coming into this industry a fair bit later than you. But also this is this has given me a life. I've traveled the world because of horse racing and my love for the sport and the horses and everyone having given me this opportunity. So, yeah, to me, you know, this is something that worries me as well. Like, what is our future? Is this going to still be a viable job prospect in 10 20 years from now do will we still be able to do what we yep. love and of course we're all trying very hard to make sure that that's the case but you know nothing's ever a given as you would see with other sports or the rise and fall of other sports yep. across yep. the globe as well as in the united states so yeah i have to agree with you there i, I talked with um i think it was ashley mayu about that as well you know like younger people going into the sport that that is a worry because you dedicate this portion of yep. your career to it. What are you going to do if it's gone? Yeah, I think, um, and let's hope it, it doesn't, you know, and again, it doesn't get to that obviously. And it does, <laughs> you know, between California making a comeback and the, you know, the intent, you know, horse racing integrity act. And I just think for lack of a better term, you know, culture matters. And it seem it does seem like culture is, is is changing so let's hope the the worst is behind us and we can continue on but i often think now you know i'll i'll be 43 next month and again i've had a you know i really i haven't known any since i graduated you know college in in may of 2000 i mean i haven't known anything other than working in an in industry and having that I love and having my career of choice, which is a, a very special thing. But I, man, I think about, I can name a few, few guys and gals that are in college now, or, you know, in their early twenties that love racing as much as we do. And I, you know, oof, it's not an easy, easy question to answer. And, uh, you know, is it gonna, going to be viable. So, uh, you know, those are all things I've worried about. And, uh, you know, my wife could tell you I've stressed, stressed a lot about, and it was like, you know, do I, do I go back to school? Do I, you know, try to do something else and, and throw my hat in the ring in a 
another area, but let's, um, you know, let's hope for, for better, better days ahead because, you know, when, when, when this industry is clicking and when things are done the right way, I mean, there's just, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than thoroughbred racing. It's just, it's the best. Well, let's hope indeed it continues to come back as it has. And as you mentioned, the West Coast, uh, brilliant turnaround there, uh, you know, couldn't be more proud of what Amazing. they've achieved yep. at Santa Anita Park to yep. turn those fortunes around. And that's just, uh, you know, it, what they've been, what, what's been thrown at them has been nothing short of, you know, some disastrous circumstances. And, and mm-hmm. they've really tried everything within their power to change things and done so successfully. So, I mean, if for us to continue as an industry to turn things around like that makes me, you know, yep. hopeful. Yeah, you got to be hopeful and optimistic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Yeah, great job out there. I was like, and again, it's it's weird, you know, because California is pretty far from the East Coast. And, you know, having been a New York guy and a Florida guy, you know, we're all in this together. But, you know, my heart is clearly with Florida racing now and was with New York racing. But that being said, although... We're in it together. I'm on this side of the country. I couldn't have been any any happier or prouder. Like when they got through, you know, Del Mar and Santa Anita, you know, accident free, just just incredible. And I think a lot of that has to do with that with that changing changing culture. And hopefully there there's more of that more of that in store because uh, you know, I, thoroughbred aftercare. I think back to like just horses and the thoroughbred in general like what they've, what they've given me in my life. Like, I mean, they've given me everything. So aftercare and taking care of them, I mean, that's paramount. There's nothing more important than that. I, I second that as well. They, horses have given me my entire life since I everything. finished yep. high school. So, and even before that, I, I was riding uh, horses when I was 10 and I had an Anglo-Arabian mare and she gave me this wonderful experience of learning how to deal with horses, how to educate myself so I can educate them. And and so, yeah, no, I wouldn't be here without horses. And I dare say that goes for a lot of us within this uh quite wonderful industry to finish it off uh, more cliche questions if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive who would it be but also what would you serve um well i'd probably serve i'd probably just serve pizza like i'd find the best homemade Planet, I effing love pizza. I love love. I'm not. I'm not at a Frank Miramati level where that's all I eat. If I could eat it every day, you know, and it was healthier, then game on. But uh, I freaking love pizza. Now I so, love pizza. I love pizza too. <laughs> it's the best. Uh, yep. Pizza's the greatest. So, all right, uh, three people. Well, I guess you know Bob Marley comes to mind. Like I. Eating dinner with him would be, uh, or just getting to meet and talk with him would be amazing. Um, let's see, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? You know what? And again, I would love to sit down and and meet Axel Rose, who is just such an enigma. And but I grew up such a huge Guns and Roses fan. Um, between the late '80s and early '90s, like after the Usual Illusion records came out, and they went on that that mat. I mean, when they were like 
biggest band on the planet, one of the biggest bands of all time. And third, um, I might go with, and I'm not like a, I'd probably go with, uh, how about Steve Jobs? Just um, what he accomplished and, and just, you know, you hear about his, his competitive streak and just smarts and all that. So two, two musicians and Steve Jobs. How about that? I mean, that's, that's quite the lineup. That's a very, very pretty random. Yeah. It's pretty no, random. But I, 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 uh, I think Axl Rose is like a fascinating guy. Um, and one of the, one of the greatest, uh, you know, lyricists to, to ever walk the face of the earth. Uh, Bob Marley, just cause it's Bob Marley. And then, yeah, and how about, how about Steve Jobs who, uh, I mean, who's changed the world. I mean, everything we use, uh, you know, he, he had a, a major hand in creating it. Yeah. I was certainly aiming high there. I, I would, I'm, I'm very simple. I'm like, well, I'd love to have dinner with my mom right now. I haven't seen her in a year. Well, all right. <laughs> no, that, I think yours is great. Yeah. Now, wh- wh- your mom is. Sh- are you from Denmark or ha- Holland? The Netherlands. Yeah, ha- the Holland. Netherlands. Uh, the nickname. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because of pan- the pandemic, I haven't been able to travel home. Whereas normally, I frequently do. So this is just, you know, me lamenting not being able to go home. Sure. Whereas, if you think about that, the pandemic in general, I I haven't lost a family member. I haven't lost any friends. So I certainly thus far have come out the better side of it so i certainly have no um grounds for any complaints really but i I like your picks i think that would be quite the dinner conversation it would be and uh yeah little little random but absolutely aiming high but yeah no i mean i know we're getting to the end of this i have such a romantic uh just vision in my mind about the netherlands and and going there to hike and sightsee and all that stuff pretty awesome Hiking would just be flat, may I add, but it's oh. still very pretty. We have beautiful views, but it is all very, very flat courtesy oh. of the um, ice glaciers that waltz through. And hence, we don't have that many hills. Like we have a little bit close to where I grew up. Uh, it's called the Utrechtse Heuvelrug, which means the the hill ridge of Utrecht. I was born in Utrecht. And um, th- those are quite pretty, but nothing like the mountains here in the United States. So oh, all right. Back. All right. That's funny. Well, now you know that I, it'll be like Florida. You can't get much flatter than Florida. That's for sure. Ah, the Netherlands will give you a good, good run for it too. <laughs> all right. Oh, that's good to know. But yeah, I say- just imagine like these snow covered peaks and all that stuff. No. So that's more Nor- Norwegian, Scandinavian uh, ways, which is, so we're just um, above Belgium. And west of Germany. Right. And they have many more, more, you know, hill ridges in Germany. You can actually go on winter sport there. Whereas in the Netherlands, you certainly can't do any of that. And our climate rivals uh, Great Britain's climate. Just, you know, English weather in terms of rain and mild temperatures. So it's not as cold as people tend to think it is. It's more uh, mild, especially now with the climate change. We don't tend to have it as cold anymore as it used to be. Great shame, really. Well... One day, my wife and I will visit. Maybe we'll uh, we'll uh, visit Mrs. Uh, Tucker and uh, bring her a postcard. We'll take her out for pizza or something like that, and it'll be all good. She certainly would appreciate that. And Jason, I dare say we've come to the end of this uh, wonderful chat. I mean, thank you so much for joining me here today and taking time out of your uh, coveted 
off day in this busy time period for you and uh, yeah keep kicking it at uh, Gulfstream Park and I'll definitely be tuning in for some of the bigger races yeah there's plenty of those to go around and uh, no this was a, a lot of fun Naomi I'm looking at the uh, clock and uh, it's a big number in terms of uh, the minutes we've been on but uh, it did it went by went by super quick and uh, just want to thank everybody for listening and uh, hope to see everybody soon Nothing further to add there. Wonderful having Jason on and being able to dive into his life and views. So that's about it for this week. Thanks again to all of you for tuning in. And of course, to the In The Money Media Network of PTF, JK, Drew Coatney, the other broadcasters in Nick Lutt, Matt Bernier and Spencer. The train just keeps on rolling. Join me again next week. Same place, same time. I would love to have you with me once again.